Would you uh, please turn in your Bibles to 1 Kings chapter 16. We'll be looking at 1 Kings 16, starting at verse 29 and going through chapter 17, verse 7. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab the son of Omri began to reign over Israel. And Ahab the son of Omri reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. And Ahab the son of Omri did evil in the sight of the Lord, more than all who were before him. And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made an Asherah. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Heel of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundations at the cost of Abiram, his firstborn, and set up its gates at the cost of his youngest son, Segub, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by Joshua, the son of Nun. Now Elijah, the Tishbite of Tishbe and Gilead, said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. And the word of the Lord came to him, Depart from here and turn eastward and hide yourself by the brook Cherith, which is east of the Jordan. And you shall drink from the brook, and I have commanded the ravens to feed you there. And so he went and did according to the word of the Lord. He went and lived by the brook Cherith that is east of the Jordan. And the ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning, and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. And after a while the brook dried up because there was no rain in the land. Let's ask for the Lord's help now. Father in heaven, we come to your word, written long ago, inspired by the Spirit, intended to be profitable for us, your people, that we might know something of who we are, and even more importantly, Lord, that we might know some, something of who you are, the living God. Lord, as we consider the truths that are laid out in this passage, they might be easy for us to say. They might even at some level be easy for us to hear. But Lord, we pray that you would not allow things to stay at the surface, but that you would uh, bring to our heart a deep uh, sense of the importance uh, of the weight of worshiping you alone, the living God. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So how could things get any worse? That was uh, the question that any of the God-fearers in Israel uh, were likely asking in the years leading up to our passage this morning. And it wasn't just a sort of crotchety pessimism to say that things were getting progressively worse in Israel. Uh, they were seriously getting worse. 
After uh, kings David and Solomon, as you might know, the kingdom uh, of Israel divided into two. And Judah was the kingdom to the south, and, and Israel was the kingdom to the north. And ever since those days, uh, the, the two kingdoms uh, were separated, and, and Israel to the north was on a course away from the Lord their God. Jeroboam, who was the first king of the northern kingdom, uh, began his reign by setting up two golden calves at the northern and southern tips of his kingdom. And he did this uh, uh, for political reasons. He did it to keep his, his subjects uh, in the country. He didn't want them to leave and go to Judah, to the south, their rival, and worship at the temple there. And so he thought that he would uh, reestablish worship according to his own uh, purposes so that it might uh, suit him and, and be to his gain. He sets up new images, a new place for worship. He sets up new priests for worship, a new time for worship. Said, uh, it says a lot about Jeroboam's character, uh, or lack thereof, that, that he would feel uh, so free to rewrite the worship of God in this way. But as wicked as Jeroboam was, uh, those who would come after him seemingly made it their aim to uh, exceed Jeroboam in his wickedness. A couple of the kings were murderers. One was a drunkard. One, or they were all doers of evil. And so the people might be wondering, how could things get any worse? But if any God-fearing Israelite was trying to console himself with that question, uh, they weren't going to find uh, much comfort there. Things could get worse, much worse, in fact. Despite the, the morally and spiritually uh, depraved condition of, of the Israelite kings to this point, Ahab, the son of Omri, would make it all pale in comparison. When it came to evil, Ahab uh, considered himself to be the varsity team and, and all other kings were merely the JV team. We read, in the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, began to reign over Israel and Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel and Samaria 22 years. And Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab was a terrible king, and he would lead uh, the people of Israel to new depths, new lows of, of disobedience during his 22-year reign. And in our passage, in, in the end of chapter 16, we're, we see at least three ways that Ahab's reign surpasses the wickedness of those who would, would come after him. First, Ahab marries a promoter of paganism. It's as if, as the author of Kings was, was writing uh, this, this book, he was shaking his head as he recorded this history in verse 31, as if it had been a light thing to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Ahab took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, of the Sidonians. Jezebel. Uh, there's a reason why this is not a popular baby name. We have uh, quite a few babies born here at Harvest Church, and in my time uh, here, I have yet to hear of a baby named Jezebel, because the name has become synonymous with immorality and wickedness, all because of this Jezebel, this foreign princess. Her father, Ethbaal, uh, was not only the king of, of the coastal city of Sidon, but he was also a, a priest of sorts uh, for the Canaanite uh, god Baal. His name literally means a, a man of Baal. And so not surprisingly, Jezebel uh, uh, grows up and she's a proud promoter of Baal worship. 
And so when, when King Ahab marries Jezebel, likely to, to secure a political alliance with the Sidonians, she brings her bales with her. And so it was uh, with Ahab's marriage to, to Jezebel that he uh, introduced a, a new wave of Baal worship uh, into Israel. Soon after, Ahab himself begins to promote the worship of Baal. This is uh, inevitable, and this is the second way that he exceeds his predecessors in evil. He himself becomes an active missionary of the god of Baal. He engages in massive building projects for Baal, building a a temple for Baal, building an altar for Baal. He builds an Asherah pole, which was, uh, she was another Canaanite uh, goddess, uh, believed to be one of the mistresses of of Baal. Ahab, uh, when it comes time to to plan out the royal payroll, he's sure to, to hear Jezebel's request so that he could employ 850 or more prophets to advance the cause of Baal. Then, of course, there was the sexual immorality that was associated with Baal worship. Sex, uh, sexual acts were, were frequently uh, performed in the temple of Baal. It was thought that this would in some way encourage Baal to uh, uh, pour out more blessings upon his people, something that Ahab would no doubt have played a role in. Under Ahab's leadership, Israel turns away from the Lord their God and they set their hearts upon Baal to worship him. And yet there's a third indicator of how bad things had actually gotten in, in verse 34, uh, how low things had actually gotten in Israel. And though it might seem like an odd insertion, the mention of Heel of Bethel rebuilding Jericho tells us something about the, the spiritual and moral condition uh, Uh, under Ahab's reign. tells us something about Ahab's influence upon the people. See, under Ahab's reign, the people did not fear God. There was no reverence of God. There was just defiance. God's word meant nothing. Because when, when Jericho was destroyed by Israel, when the Lord brought them into the land, God had had fixed to the ruins of Jericho a curse. He said that whoever, uh, no one should rebuild uh, Jericho, but if anyone were, it would be, uh, it would cost them their firstborn son and their youngest son. So this was a warning that was attached to dissuade anyone from rebuilding uh, this city. And, and the warning had stood for several centuries, but under Ahab, the religious attitude uh, was one of sneering toward God. Who is God to tell us what to do? How should, why should God keep me from doing what I want? With Ahab at the, realm, there, uh, at, at the helm, there seemed to be uh, no fear of God in the land. And so Jericho, likely with uh, some involvement uh, from Ahab, or at least his approval, was rebuilt uh, those days, even though it cost Heel his two sons, just as God had warned So things had gotten much, much worse in Israel. Now with this diagnosis of the spiritual and moral rot of Israel, an Israelite who knew their Bible would uh, quickly think of what God had said elsewhere in the Old Testament. Specifically, they'd begin to think about what God had said, what he had uh, given to his people in the book of Deuteronomy. There, uh, before the Israelites entered into the land that God was giving to them, 
uh, the Lord had warned them that while he would bless them richly as they walked in, in the way of obedience, if they disobeyed and if they pursued other gods, then God would bring a devastating judgment upon them. You can read about this, the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy 28. God says there that if the people uh, disobey, if they turn from the Lord their God, he would send famine and disease and military defeat and exile. Now, as far as Deuteronomy was concerned, the letter of the law, Ahab and Israel had, had already broken the conditions of the covenant. And as covenant breakers, they were deserving of these curses that were outlined by Moses. Uh, The law of Moses said that you shouldn't uh, set up Asherah poles, which the Lord hates, Deuteronomy 16. Uh, In Deuteronomy 13 and Deuteronomy 17, we have very strong warnings against uh, going and worshiping other gods or encouraging other people to worship other gods. See, by the letter of the law, the Israelites are guilty people, and the punishment has already been attached to the crime. Destruction. So if if there was ever a time up until this point in Israel's history uh, where where, uh, things would be followed through and where, where Israel would experience these curses, it was under Ahab. But that's not what happens. Ahab enjoys the privileges of power for 22 years. So what was God doing? Was God paying attention? Did God care? Well, certainly God cared, for Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings who were before him, we read. And the Lord will uh, certainly uh, level judgment against Ahab, but not yet. Not yet full judgment. Instead, the the Lord was patiently dealing uh, or delaying the pouring out of of full judgment that Israel deserves, and he was doing it so that he might expose the futility of their idolatry, and he might show them who the living God really is. So God's doing a twofold work in in this day. He, He patiently withholds the full pouring out of judgment so that he might show that the idols are 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 vain, but he is powerful. So let's see how how God, first of all, how he exposes the futility of the idols of Baal. It begins as Elijah abruptly appears on the scene before Ahab with a very important, but certainly a not very popular message. As the Lord, the God of Israel lives, before whom I stand, there shall be neither dew nor rain these years except by my word. Now, these are unmistakable words of judgment. They're announced ahead of time so that no one can misattribute what's going to happen. Uh, they will know that this is from the Lord, their, uh, the Lord who is God. But this was a judgment that was also promised and strategic. It was a, a promised judgment because, uh, as uh, I already mentioned in Deuteronomy 28, but also in other places like Deuteronomy 11, God warned that if the people turned from him, to worship other gods, then he in his anger would shut up the heavens and he would send drought and there would be no rain and the people would perish. The heavens would become like bronze. So this was something that God had foretold would happen, but the Lord's choice of judgment was also a very strategic selection. The Lord through Elijah was proclaiming his authority over the very realm which Baal was said to have controlled. Among the, the Uh, Canaanite 
um, nations, uh, the pagan religions who Israel had cast out, Baal was supposed to be the one who sustained life by sending rain. Now, in a culture without uh, delicacies like canned tuna and macaroni and cheese, I mean, that's a pretty important thing, right? They were dependent upon the Lord to send the rain because drought was deadly. If it didn't rain, the people would quickly starve. And so for this reason, Baal was considered, uh, who was considered the storm god, the, the god of fertility, uh, he was greatly depended upon by these Canaanite uh, nations. But when drought came, uh, as the adherents of Baal said, it was uh, because Baal had died. Only when Baal was raised to life again would the life-giving rains return. And, and so this cycle would repeat itself year after year, and the people would look to, to Baal, this god, the sender of storms, to give life. And so when God, through Elijah, comes and pronounces his judgment, his purpose is very clear. God's not just flexing his muscle with some arbitrary plague here. He is confronting a counterfeit God head-on to expose that Baal doesn't have the power to give what he's promised. And sure enough, it doesn't rain for three, over three years. A drought withers the land of Israel, and Baal for that time is shown to be powerless to intervene. But God's judgment to expose the futility of Baal uh, wasn't uh, just about rain being withheld, but it was it also involved the judgment of his word being withdrawn. We see that in verse 2, that the word of the Lord hides. And this is an act of judgment on the people. Now, almost certainly it would have made sense for Elijah to hightail it out of there after he had, had passed along his message from the Lord. Uh, if he valued his life, he knew that Jezebel would come after him. Uh, but there's more than just a sort of a prophet preservation uh, thing happening here. There was um, uh, uh, one time in, in the Korean War where uh, American troops were uh, overwhelmed and they were surrounded. They were uh, caught uh, by, by enemy forces uh, deep in the heart of the North Korean mountains and they were forced to retreat. And uh, when asked by the press about uh, what seemed like a retreat, the commanding general, General Smith, said that the Americans uh, weren't withdrawing, they were simply attacking in a different direction. Now, sometimes a retreat is actually an offensive maneuver. And that's what we have here. Yes, the brook that Elijah was sent to was over 100 miles away. It was across the Jordan River, and it was safely out of reach of Ahab and Jezebel. But something else is going on here than just uh, uh, Elijah protecting his neck. We need to remember that Elijah uh, had a special role. He was the prophet of God. He was uh, the spokesperson of God. He was God's mouthpiece. He communicated to his, uh, God communicated to his people through his prophets. And so we see this even in, in how Elijah announces the drought. He says it, it, the drought would not end until he, until Elijah said so. Elijah's words are, are equated almost with the very words of God. So as DeGraff puts it, when Elijah is silent, God's word is silent. The hiding of Elijah was for Israel the same thing as the concealment of God's word. Now in scripture, it's an aspect of divine judgment when God withdraws his word. Consider 
how God deals with Saul, the king who he has rejected. We read in 1 Samuel 28 that Saul goes to inquire of the Lord, and the Lord didn't answer him. He didn't answer him by dreams. He didn't answer him uh, by the Urim. He didn't uh, answer him by the prophets. God would not speak to Saul. He would not comfort him. He wouldn't instruct him. There was only silence. See, when God, in a manner of speaking, puts his hand over his mouth and stops all communication, that is a terrible judgment. In this way, he gives men and women over to the wishes of their wicked hearts. He allows men and women to wander about in the dark, impenetrable jungle of their sin uninterrupted. Think about what a terrible judgment this is. And that's what takes place in our passage. God will not send rain, but he will also not send his word. In silence, God will give the people over to their bail. Now, we're living at a different point in God's uh, uh, plan of salvation. We're not dependent upon uh, God's prophets in the same way to hear uh, from the word of God. We have uh, God's word recorded for us perfectly in the Bible. And we here in West Michigan, we've got unsurpassed access to those words. So how do we make sense of this? Is it, I wonder if uh, we should consider for a moment that sometimes God withdraws his word in judgment today. Think not about prophets like Elijah, but what about the state of the preached word in our churches? What about the prophetic voice of the church in the world, a, a voice that's supposed to amplify the word of God to the surrounding world? Now, there's all sorts of reasons why uh, the ministry of a church or denomination might be weakened or withdrawn. But sometimes, I think this passage prompts us to ask, in some instances, the prophetic voice of the church is taken away not because God is not paying attention, but because he is paying attention, because he sees the wickedness in the surrounding world, or because how he sees how worldliness has infiltrated the church, and in judgment, he removes his word for a season, and he gives men and women over to the desires of their sinful heart. What a a sobering warning for us that God would act in this way should uh, prompt us to be more vigilant both individually and together as a church to fight against sin and idolatry to recognize that God does not take this lightly. But as terrible as the removal of God's word is, we read a, a little further on in the book, we know that it's just for a time. The prophet Elijah is not withdrawn from public ministry indefinitely. God uh, will preserve him in the wilderness, and then he'll return eventually to Israel. And he will bring God's word. He will bring its warnings, its, its entreaties. So even in, in its withdrawal, the word of the Lord has a gracious purpose attached to it. To quote DeGraff again, there was still hope for Israel. At the very time when there was such a terrible outbreak of sin in the kingdom... God was taking steps to rectify the situation. Right then, by the means of the word of his grace, God was initiating the struggle. The concealment of Elijah was intended to make the people see that they were dependent upon his word. God was not yet abandoning the kingdom of Israel. 
So in the midst of the spiritual insanity of Elijah's day, even in the judgment of God withdrawing his word for a season, God was at work to warn Israel of the deceitfulness of their idols, to to show them that that he alone is the one who can give life and to wake them up to the the consequences uh, of life without him. But God does more than just show that the idol Baal is a vacuous hoax. He intends also to show his people again that he alone is the living God. That though counterfeit gods like Baal could not do what they promised, God could fulfill his word. He could keep his word. He could hold true to his promises even in the most miraculous of ways. So Elijah obeys the Lord's command to withdraw from Samaria and he retreats to the brook where the Lord sends him. And the Lord tells Elijah that there in the wilderness... God would give to him drink from the brook and food to eat. And God, true to his promise, provides Elijah water from the brook and he provides him food from the mouth of the ravens. Now think about this, how miraculous this is. Ravens, they were unclean animals according to the law of Moses. The people weren't to eat them. They were uh, voracious consumers of all types of food, and and suddenly they're turned into obedient delivery birds. And it's during a drought, so you could imagine that these uh, ravens themselves were likely hungry. And here they come, ravens, somehow delivering bread in the middle of a, a drought twice a day, and not just bread, but also meat, which would have been a special treat. Now, the point of this is not the, the details of the, of the deliverance, but once again, the point is the showdown that's taking place between the Lord, the God of Israel, and Baal. You see, Baal was not able to fulfill his promises to his people. He couldn't deliver the rain and the fertility that he said uh, was under his charge. And yet here, the Lord, he is able to provide for his people. He is able to keep his word not, not just in, in obvious ways, but he's able to do it in the most miraculous of ways. As one commentator put it, God could have sent angels to minister to Elijah, as he did later, but he chose to send food by the unclean ravens to show that when he wants, God can serve his own purposes, not only through the mightiest of creatures, but also through the weakest. And isn't this so often the way that the Lord chooses to show his power against all the pseudo-gods of a world gone mad. He not only shows the the powerlessness of all the idols that call for our worship, but he calls attention to his superiority, his greatness, by working through the weak uh, and unsuspecting means. This is the upside-down way that God works. God doesn't just work through uh, great things as he does great things, but he works through humble unexpected means. The method of, uh, of, that God uses, uh, he uses the weak, he uses the lowly, and this is at the heart of the Christian story. Whether it's a, a prophet from Tishbe, or whether it's a carpenter's son born in a, a cattle's quarters in Bethlehem, who was neither attractive, nor wealthy, nor powerful, whether he would, that he would use him to bring about the salvation of his people not through some mighty campaign at the head of an army, but on a rugged cross. See, God's method in using the weak, the unexpected, the miraculous, is to pry our eyes off our idols and to turn our eyes to him, the living God. 
So what might we take away from this account for our benefit? Let me suggest three things in closing. First, the account of Ahab tells us that the God of the Bible, the God of Israel, is not a God who will share worship and devotion. He's a jealous God. The entire narrative here is undergirded by this one point. The Lord God is Lord alone. Baal and all other idols, they are just flimsy substitutes. Everything that God does in this account and in the rest of the chapter is meant to show that he, the Lord, is God and Baal and the idols of man are nothing. Now the problem for us here in this room is that we are often like the Israelites. Theologian John Calvin put it memorably when he said that the, heart is a, 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 the human heart is an a idol factory. I mean, I, I, idolatry isn't just uh, us worshiping statues or, or Asherah poles. It's, it's worshiping or centering our life around anyone or anything other than God. As one pastor put it, idolatry is false worship. It's living on substitutes. It's living your life with something other than God fueling your engine. Just think for a second. We so easily make idols out of acceptance or the approval of others, of our own standards, of money, of success, of pleasure, of physical beauty, or, or uh, of independence, of sports and politics, of control. We all do it. I mean, just, just in, in going through this passage and thinking about this morning, I'm like, man, that is exactly me. And it's no small thing. Our passage checks us. The God of the Bible takes our idols seriously. He's a jealous God who will not tolerate uh, them. That's why he, he sends such a serious thing as a drought. That's why he sends his prophet Ahab into a, a battle of the gods, so to speak, to confront Ahab and to confront Jezebel. See, there's no such thing as a small idol. All idolatry is serious, and God is deadly serious about our idolatry. The second thing that we should take away, though the Lord will ultimately not allow idolatry to go unpunished, and he will bring ultimate judgment against it, this account illustrates for us God's patience towards sinners in not giving us immediately what we deserve. The people were deserving of judgment. They were deserving not only of famine, but they were deserving of, of the plagues, the afflictions. They were deserving of the military defeat. They were deserving of the exile. They were deserving to be obliterated, wiped off the map. They had clearly violated God's commands as laid out in Deuteronomy. They were, they were deserving of it all. And yet, at least here, at least now, they don't get what they deserve. Instead, Though God sends judgment, it's a judgment that's designed to expose idolatry, to show that he alone is God. Now, there's, there's a patience that we shouldn't miss in this story. Yes, God sends judgments, and he withholds the, uh, the rain, he withdraws his word, but these are judgments that, that he kindly limits, that he, he bounds, that he holds back for a purpose, for a time. God could have rightly rained judgment down upon the people, and he would have been right for doing so, so, but he shows his patience, and his patience is meant to bring forth repentance. This is why uh, he, he goes, uh, this is, he, he delays judgment, because he wants us 
to, to, to see first the, the, the vacuity, the, the emptiness of our idols, and then to see the power of the living God that we might, in truth, turn to him to forsake the idols that we've been chasing after. And that brings us to our third takeaway. Where God exposes our idols, we need to turn. We need to repent. As painful as the exposing of our idols can be, it's the kindness of God that he does it. And it's a kindness that we would do well not to squander. There could be nothing worse than being shown that our idols are empty, but then to cling to them and take them with us until we're in the grave. As I was uh, preparing the message for this morning, I uh, came across a piece in a book I had read a while ago about uh, Hugh Hefner, founder of, of Playboy. Hugh Hefner uh, devoted his life to chasing the God of, of pleasure. That was his, his religion. He thought he could find happiness in it. He thought he could find satisfaction in it. He was married once and then divorced, married a second time uh, to a much younger woman, and she divorced him as well. And then there was this news account that got a glimpse into Hugh Hefner's world. It was a Friday night at the Playboy Mansion in January 1998. Hugh Hefner was hosting as usual, but he was feeling low, just managing to cover a broken heart with the bustle of guests and entertainment. Dinner was over, but then as the guests settled down, uh, they began to watch a movie. Uh, And then his second wife breezed in from the next door where she had been living since she filed for divorce. And these, because these were her friends too. Hi, she said, tapping Hefner lightly on the shoulder. Kimber, he said, exploding from his seat. Suddenly Hefner was alive, more engaged than he had been all evening. But she wasn't there for him. She didn't stay. As the movie started, Hefner sank into the plush leather couch which covered his seat, but his hands were trembling. No one sat next to him either. This was January 1998, and no one had sat next to Hugh Hefner on movie night for nearly eight years. It wasn't uh, for lack of any playmates. The ultimate playboy sat alone by himself that evening simply because his heart was aching, and he sat alone for all those years just because he was lonely. So here's someone who had um, wealth. He uh, had the opportunities to pursue pleasure as the world sees it. And the Lord was exposing the emptiness of this idol. And what could be worse, what could be more haunting than to think that we would still cling to our idol, to take it with us to our grave, to do nothing when our idols are exposed as empty and powerless? For God to show you that your idols cannot deliver and for you to refuse to turn to insist upon holding them is a grievous thing. His kindness is meant to lead to our repentance. But we can also respond in hardness of heart and store up wrath for ourselves, as Romans 2 says. Such was the case for Ahab and Jezebel. God's patience is meant for us to turn and to repent. And that's the gracious invitation of this passage, but also of all Scripture. It's to see the living God. God who is so intent that we should worship him and worship him truly, worship him rightly, that he would send his son. 
He would send his son, uh, the light, who came into the world, came into our darkness to make the Father known, who went around exposing idols. Think of the rich young ruler who went around showing God's power through the weakest means, whether it be turning uh, the meager loaves and fish into food for 5,000 or whether it be turning a cross into an object that brings our salvation. So here's the invitation. Ask God to graciously expose the idols of our heart and then come to him knowing that he, the Lord of life, desires for us to lay our idols down at his feet and see only him and worship him. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we know from your word that the heart is deceitful above all things. Lord, we don't have the insight into ourselves into the working of our, our hearts, our motivations, uh, as uh, we uh, might like. And so that's why we begin by crying out to you and asking, O oh Lord, cast a, a holy light into our hearts to expose the dark places where we have elevated other things above you. Lord, we thank you for your patience, that you don't deal with us as our sins deserve, that you are forbearing. And Lord, we ask that we would not abuse such kindness, but that with great regularity we would look back to Jesus, the one who gave his life to forgive us of our sins and idolatry, and we would lay down our idols before him. Help us, O Lord, to have a heart that is more fully set on you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you please uh, stand as we sing our closing song, I Sing the Mighty Power of God.